0: Good morning again. This morning our scripture reading is from 1 Peter. Please follow along in your Bible or you can use the screens. And I'll be reading 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 from the English Standard Version. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, The good news that was preached to you: The word of the Lord.
1: Well, once again, good morning, church. Good morning. How's the traffic out there? Anybody come on 90 westbound? Is it getting bad yet? We may need some of you to stay to fill out the attendance for the second service. It's Palm Sunday, it's Holy Week. This is big attendance week for pastors, so um, help me to bear the shame of low attendance by staying. (laughs) Count you twice. Uh, It is uh, Passion Week, it's Palm Sunday, and uh, let me begin by uh, saying a couple of words about Palm Sunday. Uh, By the way, before I even start that, I want to let you all know that we have Good Friday service starting uh, this Friday, we have Good Friday service at 7 p.m., and we invite all of you to come to that. Uh, Katie's shy. That's going to be her last sort of official gig. So uh, if not for Jesus, for Katie. <laughs> Bid your uh, appreciation to Katie. So people uh, waved palm branches when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, and the palm branches, as a cultural symbol... It represented victory, uh, but more than victory, it represented peace and rest. Uh, you, some of you know that Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem riding a white horse as a conquering warrior would, but he came into Jerusalem riding a donkey, and the donkey represented uh, nothing. It was pathetic, and the reason kings did that is because they were already kings. You know, if you come to my house, I'm not dressed in a suit because I'm the king. So in my head, I am at least. Uh, When I go out and I'm trying to make an impression, I dress up. But when I already have the love of those who surround me, I dress down. That's the way it works. And so they wave these palm branches to a king who was already king. He was already lord. And so he rode in on a donkey and they waved these branches representing peace. And it represented this in the ancient Near East and in the Mediterranean world. And there's a point to uh, sort of start us off here. And the point is this, that Christian faith always was born out of culture and out of history and out of a people that already existed. We didn't invent something entirely new. We didn't start from scratch. We didn't uh, invent the word love or even God. These words existed before Jesus came into Jerusalem. And what the Christian message is, is a message of redemption. You take something that already is, but it's broken. It's not quite fulfilling its mandate. It's not doing the job that God created to do. And Jesus came to save it. The very thing that was already being used, but not in its fullest form. And so the palm branches, it was used before Jesus. And now we may think it's a Christian thing, but it's not a Christian thing. It's a cultural thing that Jesus has redeemed. And for that matter, so is Christmas so it was Easter. Do you know that Easter is a pagan holiday before Jesus rose from the dead? And that Christians usurped it? Do you know that the far majority of the original hymns that the church is sang were bar tunes? This is a story of Christianity, about creation, then the fall, and then redemption. Do you know why we're not all just instantly dead? Because God doesn't want to throw us away. He wants to redeem us. He doesn't want to say, Peter, you're already broken. You're messed up. I'm going to have to start over. No, he cares about me. He meets me where I am at. In other words, God cares about recycling, folks. What a great contextualization of Seattle. I'm I'm a great missionary here. So the basic lesson... Uh, out of this is another way to talk about what i've been talking about this idea of redemption is to talk about our propensity for idolatry i don't know if any of you have ever thought about palm sunday uh, as it relates to idolatry but what is idolatry idolatry is putting weight on things that cannot bear the weight And that's what the people were doing. When they were waving those palm branches, they were putting their hopes on an earthly king. So what was happening is either either they were putting too little weight on the real Jesus. Or they were putting too much weight on a figment of Jesus in their own imagination. They imagine Jesus to be just an earthly king, and they put these earthly hopes on him. Totally doesn't make sense because he's actually the king of the entire universe. He came not to conquer the world through bloodshed as they had hoped, but through his own bloodshed, his death, and his resurrection. So their expectations, their uh, understanding of what peace And rest and victory, as they wave those palm branches, is made of, was completely off. And so that's what the scriptures call idolatry. When you have eternal hopes that you set on temporal things, or you set temporal hopes on eternal things, that's idolatry. Uh, And actually, long before Palm Sunday, this idolatry started when uh, first the story of Adam and Eve illustrates idolatry. They were looking to their own selves to be God. That was the temptation. If you eat of this tree, if you eat of this fruit, then you will be like God. Well, that's silly. There's only one God. You can't put the weight of God on yourself. But that's what Adam and Eve were doing. They were saying, oh, you know, I think I can bear the weight of being God. Let me give that a shot. And so the whole story of the fall began there and so the basic lesson of palm sunday is the story of idolatry now um the christian faith because at the core of what the christian faith is is a story of the redemption of temporal things for eternal purposes the way god intended christians never look down on culture We never judge the relationships and the people around us. We don't demonize culture. We don't throw it away because God hasn't thrown us away. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not put out. Jesus, when he teaches about how God is going to save the world, he says, you know, there's chaff and there's wheat, but we're going to let them grow up together because we don't want to destroy the wheat in the process of trying to take away the chaff. So we, we let the wheat and the tares, excuse me, grow up together. And so God is allowing us to live so that in time we begin to experience salvation. And so Christians, at the core, there is compassion, and there is a, a, a belief that we have in the people and in the culture around us. We don't judge it and simply discard it execute it so one way that uh you can think about this is if there is something in the culture or if there's a loved one in your life that you don't approve of the non-christian thing to do is to judge it and discard it just put it outside the box that you approve of and just hate on it judge it think evil thoughts about it and anything associated with it just throw it away also or, or, you can become the very resource that they will come and look for when their weight of eternity comes crushing down on their idolatrous hopes. And you can be there. You don't break the relationship in the hopes that, finally, in due time, when the weight of eternity begins to crush their uh, temporal, non-load-bearing walls of their life, you're there. So for example, uh, I'm in a season of weddings. The spring is coming, summer is coming. There are several weddings lined up. And uh, there are some things I don't approve of in these marriages that I'm doing. They just aren't. But what do I do? Do I say, I'm not going to do your wedding because I disapprove of X? No. Because when they need wisdom... When they realize the weight of what they're doing is going to crush their expectations and their own human strength. I want to be the first one they call. This is what it means to believe in redemption. So to get specific, for example, uh, some couples, uh, I have to ask, do you want to do a civil ceremony or do you want to do a religious ceremony? And they say, well, you know, she's not a believer or I'm not a believer. I'm not really sure where I stand with God. I say, great, you know, this is your wedding. I'm a civil servant. I'm also a servant of the church. So I'm happy to perform either one by the power invested in me, by the state of Washington, or by the church of Jesus Christ. Either one. You pick one. And some people choose civil. And I say, that's great. You are not, you don't have enough faith to do a religious ceremony. But let me explain something to you. Just, just a question. Do you believe that your human love is worthy of this other person's trust? Do you believe you will be consistent enough? Do you believe that you are all they need? 24-7. They will never, ever be disappointed in you. This is what I ask. Just a simple question. And the answer, of course, is well, I don't know. Well, the reason I advocate a religious ceremony, even if you don't have sufficient faith right now, is you want to put the weight of the eternal need for your love on God. Because really, it's God who is going to love your spouse through you, it's not you at all. In fact, your love is fragile, it's fickle, it's conditional. I mean, even if you're not a religious person, wouldn't you agree that human love at its shining best fails? And so why don't we talk about what a religious ceremony might look like? Oh, sure, okay, let's have that conversation, and off we go. And then another way that um, this might come up is wedding vows. Do you want to use traditional wedding vows, or do you want to uh, write your own vows? Because a lot of couples want to write their own vows. I say, oh, great, let me take a look at your vows. So you're telling me, this is just a question I want to ask you is what I say. So you're telling me you believe the strength of your love is sufficient for the rest of your life? Is that what you believe? Just tell me if you think, knowing what you know so far about love. And then, well, okay, here's why I would advocate for a traditional vow. Because when you submit, and that's the word, submit to traditional wedding vows, you're acknowledging that this stream has been flowing long before you got here. And it will flow long after you're gone. The wedding is a God-ordained institution that's bigger than you, that you're stepping into, you're not going to form it, but it is going to form you and you're submitting to not your own promise, but to a covenant that you and God are making. It's like, oh, but if you want, you could write a letter to your spouse and we could add that to the vow so that the vows can be what they are, which is represents covenantal relationship with god but your letter can represent your feelings for your uh, partner which is what they are oh great now that feels proportionate what what i'm trying to do in these uh, uh, opportunities is to name idolatry for what it is things that are temporal things that are human cannot bear the weight of eternity That's what the Palm Sunday story is about. And that's what today's passage is about. Peter, in uh, in these verses, explains to us what eternity basically boils down to. When, When the preacher talks about things that are eternal, what's he talking about? What's eternal? What is the thing that God cares about? What's the thing? Guess what's the thing? Love is. Oh, by the way, this picture is a a, a bull. <laughs> like, remember when the Israelites they made a golden calf? They made an idol. I hope you have already made that connection. But that's where the um, that's where the mind went. Okay, so we have one point today because the introduction was sort of its own point. Uh, the point is, love is what matters, and then we'll do an application, and then we'll do conclusion. Okay. All right. Um, allow me to read these verses again just to help focus us. And I want to just direct your eyes to the words that I've underlined for us uh, on the screen. Having purified your souls by obedience, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Last week, we talked about this idea of obedience, and uh, what we said was that you have to do the right thing in life. And that's really the point. There has to be a spirit of submission in your life that if you want to be a good anything, one of the lessons you learn is that you have to obey. If you just did the things you wanted to do, you would die as a young child because you'd be eating candy 24-7. So from a very young age, you learn that you do things you do not want to do. And that's the biblical word obey. You learn... To obey. It was a very clear and direct word that Peter gave us. But it was also general in a sense that, well, what are we supposed to obey? And then in these verses, Peter explains to us what that obedience is. And he says this, that when obedience, when it's essentially boiled down, it is love. And any given moment, your job is to love. This is the whole summary of what the experience your salva- of your salvation that he was talking about last week boils down to. Growth in your ability and capacity to love. So verse 22 we have purified your souls in obe- by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The word pure in this verse just literally means to have one thing. The goal of our life is to have as few things in our hearts as possible. And at our final moment, when we have reached our apex, the thing that remains in our hearts is love. The truth that Peter wants us to obey is the truth that truth is ultimately relational. That God, at the core of his being, is a relationship. This is why Christianity preaches a what's called a triune God. Three in one, one in three. We believe in monotheism. We believe there is only one God. But this God exists not as a single solitary being, but three beings who are completely and utterly and totally intimate, therefore one. It's what theologians call the eternal dance of the Trinity. You look one way, it looks like one. You look the other way, it looks like three. You get close it's really one. You get far, it's three. You get closer, and then it's three again. You can't distinguish between three and one because it, in its essential form, is a relationship. God is love. And out of that nature, that essence of being, human beings were birthed. And God didn't just make one perfect human being, but he made a family of human beings to represent the relational nature of his nature. God is a relationship. God is love. Truth, whatever you deem as true, it's not as true as when you begin to understand it within the context of love. When the scriptures talk about truth and love together, it doesn't say truth and love, it says truth. In love. Notice the preposition in. That truth itself is a part of love. If you do not know how to love, scriptures say, then you do not know God. For he is love. Our capacity to love, in fact, Jesus himself said, is what allows the world to believe God exists. You can say you believe in God. You can say you have theology. You have all of these arguments and apologetics for why God is, and yet you lack love. And the apostle Paul says you're just an empty gong. You're just noise, and it's annoying. Love is everything. In fact, love explains everything. Love has to be our narrative. Um, So a driving story. I was taking my dog, Bear, on Friday, my Sabbath day, to the vet. And uh, um, I get off 405 South, Cole Creek Parkway, and I have to make a left. And there was a long line of people trying to make a left. And it's two lanes, but both lanes are filled up. And I'm trying to make a left, but there is this car. In front of me. And I got to tell you folks. It was a Honda Civic. I remember this. And it was blue. And it just was moving so slow. And I'm thinking it's downhill. Just take your foot off the brake. That's all I'm asking. Just a little motion in the ankle. is all I want. I'm thinking this. And I'm thinking it so fast. And this guy. He stops at the green light. And he looks to the right. I'm like, why are you looking to the right? It's your right of way. It's a green arrow pointing to the left. Go left right now. I want to see your arms moving. It's not moving. He's just looking. His ankle is frozen. His neck is moved. The only thing that's moving. I'm so annoyed at this person. I can't quite tell what this person is. But the narrative starts. And I know this because as soon as he did negotiate that turn, and I got... Uh, behind him and then next to him, guess what I had to do? I had to look. Do you, ever, you, you know, do you know the feeling where you have to look? Do you know why you have to Do you know why I had to look? Because I had a narrative, and I had an absolute need to confirm this narrative. Do you know this? You have a narrative. That's why you have to look. I had to look, and I was right. He looked like, and he was, I mean, his driving looked like, and he was an older-ish Asian male. I don't know. I want to help us out. I do. I don't want to have to say that, but there he was. And I realized also, as I I confirmed my narrative and the uh, and the, the, you know, the infallibility of my judgment. He reminded me of my dad. And all of this childhood frustration about the way my, by the way, he listens to these sermons. This is not going to go well. All of these childhood frustrations of sitting in the backseat as my dad drove us around. Poor guy. I mean, just all of society hating him as he drove. (laughs) We have narratives about people. And the reason we have narratives about people is because we don't want to love them. We don't believe in redemption. We want to be able to just categorize people in this one little section there's no redemption for them. There's no hope for them. Just, they're just throwaways. Now, if I got to know this guy, of course it wouldn't be that way. But in that moment, I was done with him. I was so badly done. I, express, I communicated this to him by revving my engine really hard and making sure he felt me speed away so he knows how inappropriately slow he was driving. <laughs> how else do you communicate that? And so Peter says in verse 23, born again, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This word uh, born again in verse 23, uh, the literal definition means to produce again. And it's literally the word fruitful. It's translated here born again but the literal translation would be so that you are fruitful or fruitful, again, I guess that'd be the literal translation. What, fruitful, what does that mean? It means about people that when you understand that your job isn't to have a narrative about people so you can throw them away, to have a narrative about a certain segment of culture or a group of people or a person, but you're able to imagine, understand God's narrative for all of us, which is the story of redemption, and you're able to understand the other person within God's narrative for you, you're bearing fruit as a child of God, as you learn to love people. And, you know, the scriptures talk about eternity, about being imperishable, as Peter does here, It doesn't just mean that you're you're living forever, just being your unredeemed, wicked, judgmental, narrative-having self. That'd be hell. Who'd want that? Would you really want to live as you, the way you are forever? Do other people want that? No. Susie is not in it for all of eternity for the Peter that I am today. No, she has God's narrative for me. She believes that I am growing, that there's a trajectory to who I am. She holds that narrative alongside who I am. And through that narrative, she's able to love me. And that's fruit in her life. She's being a daughter of God because that's God's narrative for her. And as I experience the love of God through Susie, I'm able to now love other people. I'm bearing fruit as a son of God. And that way, we long for eternity, a place where love is overflowing. Have you ever even been loved for a second by somebody? It is absolutely exhilarating. I am never a better human being than when I am just coming off of having just been loved. My energy level is high. I'm forgiving. I'm generous. I'm hopeful. I love you. It's great when I have just been loved. And imagine that sensation times a billion, but the whole room is just bubbling over, filled with it, saturated, oversaturated with love. That eternity I want. And that is what Peter is saying. Now, look at this image uh, behind me. I don't know if you thought it was a random image, but this is the latest picture that the Hubble uh, telescope has taken. In this picture that the Hubble took, uh, there are about 30,000 stars in this picture. Uh, it's actually a picture of the spiral galaxy. I don't know what this is. This is just what it says. Spiral galaxy NGC 5023 for you fact checkers out there. Uh, and it's about 30 million light years away. And it's uh, a most highly resolved picture of a galaxy that we have. Okay? Okay. But actually, it's not well-resolved at all because it has, in reality, billions and billions upon billions of stars in this one galaxy. But we are only able to capture 30,000 of them. Psalm 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, Susie and I, some of you know from previous sermons that we love to go on evening walks as we did last night. And the first thing we do as soon as we step out of our house is we look up and we see the stars. It's amazing to us. The sky is getting clearer. The stars are getting brighter. Stars are beginning to uh, twinkle. And I, I think I like it because I feel the smallness and the insignificance of who i am and what i am just my own smallness is it's really helpful it's just it's exhilarating to feel that the scriptures tell us that the heavens declare the glory of god and this word glory it's literally the word matter it means to be heavy and when something is heavy it means it Matters, and when we look up into the night sky, as we see the vastness of the night sky and the billions of stars that are just in just one galaxy, we begin to realize not just our insignificance but our significance, contrasted to the glory of God, we realize he loves us. He cares about me and my story he 's interested in redeeming little old me. I'm not worth the time. I'm not worth the effort. Why? Why is God doing this? Because I matter. And that's what the scriptures mean. I share his glory. I share his matter. I weigh something. I'm not just a piece of grass that blows away in the wind. I'm not just a flower that falls and it's gone. I am created by God to exist forever forever. But not just the way I am. That's not worth it. But in the narrative of God's redemption, I have infinite value. More valuable, the scriptures tell us, than the stars. More glory. I share in God's glory. And Peter is saying, every single person you've ever seen has this much weight glory, matter, significance. And your job is to write the narrative of God in their life and love them. They're not a throwaway. Your job isn't to judge them and hate them and feel smug about yourself. And this, Peter says, is, is the good news, the word that was preached to you. That you are loved. And because you are, you are called to love. And everything else outside of, outside of love is idolatry. Because that's your job. Application here. Uh, give you three application points. Uh, number one, confess your idolatry. And this is hard to do. And that's why we have uh, the second one. But first, we begin with confess your idolatry of putting agendas above love. And if you have a crazy life, if there's stress in your life, if you have things happening to you or things coming at you, you know just how easy it is to be lost in the moment and forget that your job is to express and convey the love of God the love of God that he has for you. Your job is to allow that to flow through you. And so I want to invite you to invite God's word of love to be born in you so that you can be born again. That simply means that you are fruitful. People can taste the sweetness of God from you. Okay, that's the first application point confess your idolatry and invite god to help you to be born again second i want to invite you to be uh, someone who drops the narrative you know in that moment you have a narrative about somebody you ever talk about somebody else in a negative way or a harsh way in a way that doesn't accurately communicate the commitment of god in their life Maybe it has a little bit something to do with you feeling insecure about God's commitment to you and his work in your life and his hope for you. Maybe, maybe a, little bit, a little bit of you, a part of you, need, has a need to crush somebody just so you're not crushed by the weight of life. So I want to invite you to drop the narrative just in that moment when you feel a narrative about somebody else forming and you feel the urge to have to look. Just confess, God, this narrative is ridiculous. This is not the story of God in this person's life. This is born of my idolatry. This is born of my insecurity. This is born of my fears. It's not born of you. Help me to be born again. And then, third, a real practical one for our church. I want to just uh, cast a little bit of vision about this opportunity to build our community. Um, I was meeting with somebody, and they were helping me to understand sort of some perspective about our church. And uh, we've spent the last two years laying down the foundations for change. You know, things like rebranding and renaming and changing our governance and restructuring and all of that. That's all great, but that's all on paper. But in the next season, in the next four to seven years, we have an opportunity to build our community. We have a chance to help people get integrated and folded into our community through events and programs and ministries. But this is where people come in. This is where you come in. The staff cannot do this alone, and the changes on paper uh, can't do this alone. What we actually need are people lending themselves to build this community. And I want to name just... uh, one practical way to do this, we are looking for one leader who will have a vision of enfolding for our church. And what enfolding means is when they first visit to when they go to a membership class, a lot of things have to happen for a first-time visitor to feel like they want to become a member of our church. What has to happen here? Well, when they, after their first visit, somebody has to write them a letter You know, we don't do phone calls because, gosh, we live in 2015. We don't call each other. That'd be silly. Uh, But we will write a postcard or something. I know it's sad, right? We should call each other and scare each other. (laughs) Oh, hi. Um, But phone calls, letters... We have to have events and gathering events and connectional opportunities all the way to the point where they feel like, gosh, this community knows me. I'd like to get to know this community better. They've reached out to me. i like to belong. i like to serve. i like to give. How do I officially do that? And that's becoming a member. And so we are looking for a person who can have a vision for this and lead a team of people to help the church be an enfolding church so that newer people have a pathway, steps that can walk towards becoming a full-fledged, you know, a part of this body. I was talking to somebody this week who said, you know, I like to think about how to... uh, give away free yoga and exercise classes so that we can have enfolding experiences as a church because that's what I do for a living. Or somebody said, you know, I love to have uh, picnics across the street at the park when the farmer's market is taking place. It's so easy. You spend five to ten bucks, get some food, lay out a blanket, and you have a party. And so I, I would love to be one who organizes that a few times this summer. These are enfolding opportunities. But these are just pieces to what this ministry can be. And so uh, I just want to plant this seed and communicate this opportunity. If that's you, you really need to come talk to uh, anybody in the staff, and we will have conversations to make sure it's a great fit for you and to uh, help you put a team together and get this going. But we're in that season right now where we have an opportunity to build our community. And then the final stage would be we begin to see change in our culture, culture change. Okay? And then uh, a last sort of subset of this uh, application point is next week is Easter. And statistically, we know uh, lots of folks will actually come to church if they're invited. And lots of people actually won't come to church if they're not invited. So a lot, of, a lot hinges on the invitation itself. And I want to just invite you to invite someone uh, next week to church. Uh, we're going to talk about the question, is God good? And I think that's going to be an interesting talk, and we should have fun. It should be very relevant to somebody uh, who is thinking thoughts about God or church. Let me conclude here. Uh, As I feel the narrative forming in me about somebody else, and uh, I feel the urge to have to look, I really realize all of those uh, moments of shortcoming are opportunities for me to realize that I am not the source of love, but I'm merely the vessel through which God's love flows. And so for those of you who are uh, sitting here and you're not really a uh, Christian yet, I want to ask you, do you believe, just a question, do you believe that your love is sufficient to last you and those around you for the rest of your life? Do you believe you are the source of love? Or do you believe you're a battery that just needs to be recharged all the time? And I think whether you're a believer or not, you recognize the deficiency of your love source. It's not you. It can't be you. It has to be something else. And it has to be true that human beings are merely vessels. That has to be the truth. And the question I want to ask you is, what is the source? Who is the source? And the Christian claim is that God is the source. And God conveyed this love to us. The way we are able to connect to the source of love is through Jesus Christ. That there's no way for a human being to recharge apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ and this is the good news the seed that has to be planted in us that has to be birthed in us that has to grow in us and ultimately bear fruit through us Jesus is love and not us and every disappointment in your life should point you to the love of God that is in Christ would you bow your heads with me God we believe love is the thing Love is the only thing that matters, that actually is glorious and heavy and weighty. And we want to live in that, and we want to be filled up with that. And we definitely want that to be what comes off of us and from us. We want to bear that fruit in our life. So help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name.